Welcome, everybody, to part two of the series that we're in right now called Relentless. And if you're just joining us and you're like, was there a part one? Yes, there was. It's on the uh, media player on our website, encounterchurch.org slash messages. You can catch up to that one and so many more that way. Uh, what we're doing right now here at Encounter is, uh, is we're taking this month in January and we're moving through the, the book in the Bible called Jonah. And a lot of people know about Jonah, even if you didn't grow up in the church, even as th this whole thing is absolutely new to you. Jonah's that, that fantastic story, that weird story in every sense of the word, where a man, where this guy Jonah is swallowed up by a fish whole and lives to tell the tale. Like it's a, it's a weird story. But you got to remember, you got to keep with us on this because, because what we introduced last week is we said, hey, listen, as fantastic as this story is, don't forget that this is not, first and foremost, about the whale, about the fish. This story is not even about Jonah or this great city, Nineveh, that, spoiler alert, he will eventually end up at. It's not about any of that. This is a story about God and his relentless, wholehearted commitment to us. Honestly, this kind of half-hearted, wishy-washy, lukewarm kind of people at times. And so what we're going to see this morning, where we left off last week, is, is we didn't get to the fish yet. We didn't get to the best part, the, 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 the whale that swallows them up whole. We didn't do that. We just stayed focused on the storm. Jonah was running away from God, and God sent this storm on him uh, to, to kind of capture his attention, to, to, to grab him, and, and we said, bring him back. And that was a key takeaway from last week. And I heard about this from many of you and said, I needed to hear that. And we have a saying around here that encouragement is like oxygen for the soul. And some of you took the time to share a little bit about what God was speaking to you with me. And that was like a deep breath of fresh air last week. As you just said, like, listen, I needed to hear, I needed to hear that the storm that I'm in, God didn't send it to pay me back, that God sent the storm to bring me back. And I'm listening now. And so some of you we acknowledge are in this place and it's like this crisis moment where like, Maybe you didn't get swallowed up by a fish, but there was a health thing or there was a financial thing or a relational thing, like whatever it was. And it just creates this crisis situation in you. And it, it's kind of, it, it makes you start to ask those questions of God. Like, is this you? Are you behind this? And so I want to address that this morning. Because a lot of churches, a lot of times, um, you, you, you maybe a lot of you grew up in this kind of church that did sort of like the invitation thing, the altar call kind of thing. I won't do like a show of hands, but I know many of you. I didn't grow up in that church, but I know many of you have. And you know how it works, depending on your church background, like after the message, after the time, you know, the speaking time, like the pastor stands up on stage and depending on your background, the organist, and it's always an organist, is going to play one of two songs right? It's going to be either just as I am, right? And all the verses, no matter what. Yes, awesome. Or, or if like me, you come from kind of this, uh, this reformed background, it's going to be amazing, amazing grace, every verse but number four. Because for whatever reason, we don't sing ever number four. It's like, don't, whatever song, whatever, we don't do number four. That's just off limits to, off limits to us. And the pastor stands kind of up front and they like do the, the organ thing and just waits for, wait for people to come, come down the aisle and wait for people to like, you know, pray the prayer and, and like get saved, whatever the, whatever the deal is. And we don't do that a lot around here. And one of the reasons why we don't do that a lot around here and kind of like speaking of that crisis situation is because it tends to create two reasons. Number one, it tends to create kind of like these crisis Christians People that are like, listen, I am in it right now. Like I stepped in it or it was thrown at me. Like whatever it is, I'm in it. It's all around me. And I need, I need to get out. 
And that's like the identity, that's the identifying marker. I just need to be out of this circumstance. God, help me get out. But really at that point, it's not so much about you, it's about the circumstance, isn't it? And the thing about God is he tends, he tends to really like to work on us before he works on the circumstances that we're in. He cares more about your heart than what's happening around you in your life. And so we, we don't get into that so much because we don't want to kind of create these, these crisis Christians. Um, sometimes you know, we say it like this one, God cares much more about the growth of your heart than like the motion of your hand or your feet walking out into the aisle or whatever it is. That's number one. It tends to kind of create, we don't do it because it tends to kind of create these crisis Christians. The other reason is, and it's not always this case, but it's sometimes easy to assume that God is only at work with the people who like come forward. And you think like the rest of us are just kind of like supporting cast members. The rest of us are sort of like the spectators in the stands and the players in the field are the ones that come forward and offer a prayer or surrender themselves to God. And so at Encounter Church, we want to like just acknowledge again, refresh again, that listen, none of us are just spectators in the stands of what God is doing in someone else. That if you're humble enough, every time we open up this story, the word of God, the Bible, it's, we're reading it. It's also reading us. There's a point of application for us, no matter what, if we're humble enough to be able to, be able to see it. So we don't do it for those reasons. Christ is Christians, and it's not all about us. It's all about us all the time. The other thing is, though, I've seen this work. I've seen lives and hearts changed as a result of this. And listen, I can't explain it, but it's just, it's incredible. So true story, like I think the first time that I've seen somebody's life change through this, um, I, was, uh, I was a volunteer youth group leader, and I headed down south and uh, for this like service work trip, we're like cleaning up the area. We stayed in this little church and slept there. And so of course we went and attended the church on Sunday morning. And I think honestly, like there was 30 or 40 of us, and I'm not exaggerating. I think we at least doubled, maybe tripled the usual attendance of the church. It was like one family, maybe two. It was an intimate gathering, right? And we show up and we're all wearing like lime green, you know, bright green shirts. And it's like, listen, okay, so there's like a few families at a part of this church. And then there's like all of us. And after the message, like the pastor does the thing, and this was a just as I am church. And uh, and he stands and just waits for, you know, offers the invitation. If any of you is in a place, you know, you need to turn your life over to Jesus, come on forward. And he's, and he's up there and he's waiting. And I'm thinking, man, like there's 20 people here and they're all related. And then there's all of us. We paid money to serve Jesus here. Like we're not coming down the aisle, dude. And just at like verse 12 or whatever it felt like, um, just when, when it's starting to feel awkward and it's like, okay, did, land the plane here. We got, we got feed 30 kids lunch over here. So, you know, let, let's get going. Just as it's starting to get awkward, I'm not, not kidding. The guy, the kid next to me stands up, walks down the aisle, completely gives his life over to Jesus. And I'm blown away. And so I talked to him afterwards and I'm like, I sat next to you for 16 hours in a van on the way here. You didn't like bother bring, like bringing up, hey, going through some stuff, could really use a prayer. What was that all about? And he looks at you. I'll never forget what he said. I, said. I hope it lands on you too. He goes, you know, nobody's ever asked me before. Like the guy, the random pastor of this church down south, standing up in front and going, hey, listen, you want to be a Christian? 
can we pray for you? Come on forward. He goes, nobody ever asked me before. And those words just kind of follow along. And I just want to give an opportunity to say, like, listen, if you're in that crisis situation today, like, we're not a come forward, raise your hand all the time kind of church. We do, we do that very rarely, but we always have this prayer table in the back. And during this last song, like, if this is your opportunity to head back there, pray with somebody, offer up whatever crisis situation or whatever it is that's God grabbing your attention, head to that table. We would love, we'd love to ask. I'm asking, go head back there and we'd love, to, we'd love to, to pray for you. And if you have some anxiety about that and if you're like, oh man, oh, I don't know if I should do that, that's definitely God speaking to you and saying you need to head to the table in the back. I just want to get that out there. All right, so we're going to go to Jonah's crisis situation this morning. This is the book of Jonah, chapter two. It's a weird book to find. So if you've got to look it up, table of contents, there's absolutely no shame in that whatsoever. There's going to be a lot of notes to take so you can follow along in the Bible app and take them that way or in your, uh, your, your paper Bible. That's cool too. Um, we're going to also head through this. I didn't know there'd be so many people here. There was, it's the weather out there. So I was like, putting this together, you know, and then like looking things over. And I thought, you know, it'd be cool. Like there's probably going to be, you know, a small group gathered here at Encounter this morning. So I thought we'll just make this into like a throwback Bible study kind of thing, because the only people who are going to brave the roads and like show up today are the people who are like super in love with Jesus (laughs) and the people who are crazy enough to want to meet him today on the road. So this is us. We're, we're picking up in Jonah chapter one, verse 17. I'm just kind of like giving you some time to find it. Um, Sometimes, by the way, the little numbers, the chapters and verses in the Bible, those were put there a long time later. And sometimes they're very, very helpful. And other times they're not. Because it's just, it's just an oops along the way. This morning we've got one of those oops along the way. Whoever put in the, the verses and the chapter headings, this is not like the inspired word of God, like this is where chapter two starts. That came much, much later. And this time it's just kind of a weird time. So we're going to finish off verse or chapter one with verse 17, because kind, it's kind of an important verse. It says this, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And we said that is a crucial part of the story. Remember, Jonah is thrown overboard because of the storm. That's how to get it to calm down. And as soon as Jonah hits the water, our understanding is like the sky totally clears up and it's like a beautiful day outside. It's all of a sudden, you know, what happened? Where did that come from? This is beautiful. And we said, you know, we can't prove it, but you just get the sense, at least for a split second, Jonah might think, that did the trick. I can head back into the boat now. It's all clear. I learned my lesson. God is done with me. Great. Not at all the case, because now God provides this huge fish and swallows Jonah. It's like God saying, listen, you thought you were out of the woods. You thought you had turned your life over to me. I'm still at work. I'm just grabbing your attention. Clearly, Clearly, God did not have Jonah's attention yet, and he goes to some seriously bizarre extent. Okay, continue on. It says, And Jonah now was in the belly of the fish for three days, and just to make sure we got the point, three nights as well. It's, just, it's a weird story, right? You think about Jonah getting caught in the belly of this fish. Um, now, they didn't have a word to like distinguish between like whale and fish. And so you just, you know, larger animals, probably thinking like a whale, warm-blooded animal. You think like we're talking 108 to 115 degrees inside of there. Like it's very uncomfortable. It's also like, you know, not too roomy. There's not too, too much elbow room in there, right? It's cozy in there. He's got like the, the gastric stomach fluids washing over him. And this is, this is science that he, um, like these fluids that are, you know, permeating him all throughout and being on his skin, it would have started to bleach 
his skin out. So you just like imagine Jonah as like this, you know, as white as like this Dutch kid in January in Michigan. Like he's just, he's almost see-through now because of like all these fluids and everything. And I go into the detail a little bit just because it's, it's weird. You know, like this thing, remember, it might be able, might be better read as a parable and we shouldn't really go into that. And we disagreed with that last week on the grounds that it's not really written like a parable. It's written like a historical fact. Jonah is a historical figure. He's written about elsewhere in the Bible. This morning, I want to kind of add into that a little bit and say, personally, I believe that this actually happened. But, but the way that I get there, and this is, if you're thinking about exploring Christianity or taking another step in that direction, I think you should know this one. What we do oftentimes, a huge mistake, one of the most common mistakes that I see, is that we take stories like this, bizarre stories like this, and what we do is we, is we, ha- we sense like we have to make a decision of whether or not we believe Christianity based on a, on a wild story like this one. And so we were like, okay, first things, like I got to figure out whether or not I believe that God sent this huge whale or fish or something to swallow a man whole and he lived to tell the tale. Can I wrap my mind around that? And listen, even if you say yes and you believe and then you get to the part of Jesus and also believe that, because of how you got there through like a wild you know, story like Jonah, like it's gonna do weird things to your faith on the far side. Because at the center of it isn't, isn't what's supposed to be at the center of it, namely Jesus. And so what I just encourage you to do is say, listen, and if you're talking to somebody who's not really sure about Christianity because these pretty wild claims in here, what I just encourage you to do is say, listen, don't enter into the Christian story through a bizarre one like Jonah. Enter into the Christian story as it was meant to be entered into. I talk to people all the time who are just starting out on their spiritual journeys with Christianity and they're asking me what to read and I never start with Jonah. I never even start with Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. I start with the center point of the story because I want you to know what the point of the story is and then build it out from there. I start with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I start with these eyewitness accounts and say, listen, these are people who lived with Jesus for years. And they didn't, they didn't immediately come to this conclusion. The only thing is they saw it. And so they had to deal with that, with what they've seen, that Jesus, listen, I don't know, but he... He called, he said he was going to die and then raise himself from the dead. And then he did. And so just enter into the story by going to Jesus first and then kind of back into the Jonah story, not the other way around. That's all. Okay, continuing on. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Some translations of the Bible say something like, then from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. You notice anything weird about that? Day number one, Jonah. Dear diary, I'm inside a fish right now. (laughs) Period. Day number two, still fishing inside. Period. Three days goes by before Jonah gets to the point of like, all right, God. There's only one way I'm getting out of this. There's actually two ways he could exit a fish, but nevertheless, there's one way that God is going to bring him out. It's going to be by opening up the lines of communication with God. It's just like the, the stubbornness in Jonah is impressive to like dig in 
You guys have seen like that billboard from the ad council that's like just encouraging people to like see a doctor every once in a while and get their checkups, things like that. And it's like this year, thousands of men will die from stubbornness and somebody like spray paints on the bottom. They're like, no, we won't. <laughs> Some of you are like, I married that guy. Yeah, I'm super happy about that one. Uh, like this stubbornness of Jonah to have run away from God, fish swallows him up. It takes three days of living inside of a fish for him to be like, hey, listen, I, I, I think I should talk to God about this one. It might be from him. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But there's also like a part of this where like we've got to hand it to Jonah because he was running away from a truly awful, horrible people. You know, we don't want to be like condemning or, or judgmental towards other groups especially other people groups, but like the Assyrians that God was asking him to go to, the Ninevites, they were particularly awful. Like remember, remember from last week, they, they drew like pictures and carved scenes of just how awful they were to the people that they came into contact with, like horrible murder, uh, worse, torture. And then were like, they did such terrible things and then would brag with their carvings about the awful things that they did to people. And for Jonah, remember, we said, like, for him, this is personal. This is not just like, I saw a scene that they carved one time. What kind of person does that? No, no, for them, for him, it was, I can tell you firsthand accounts, because they were our neighbors. And so they would send people, little bands, Tiny armies, platoons, they would send them out and they would just do horrible things to our people. And so we can start to understand like the stubbornness that is behind him. And this is, this is one of the points of contact in the story that we can see all of us because like we don't blame him for waiting three days. If we lived what he lived, we should have the humility to say, I would have made the same decisions that he made. I could aspire to that. But honestly, one of the scary things, one of the terrifying things about this story is remember Jonah's a historical figure. Uh, the books of First and Second Kings, just like they just chronicle the events of the kings in Israel, very, very historical, very, very dry facts. It references Jonah. And you know, he's a good, he's a good guy. He's a good prophet. And so you read through the writings about him elsewhere and you think, this is a guy who's obedient 99% of the time. But if you're showing up here today, you have to know too that you've shown up to experience, to encounter, to worship a God who is relentless at grabbing hold of that last 1%, no matter what it is that you have, shown to, you have shown up to experience and worship a God who will say, no, no, I will be Lord of all in your life or else I am not Lord at all. Whatever your holdout is, for Jonah, it's the Assyrians, the Ninevites. I'm not going there. God, ask me anything else. For others of us, we show up here and it's like, God, I, I'm so easily throwing myself before your feet and say, have your way with me, A anything, name it. I'll go anywhere. And God is saying, you're harboring this toxic relationship in your life. You know you're not supposed to be with them, be with her, him. You know that God isn't behind it. You know that it's leading 
you away from God, not towards him. So I'm asking you to end that. And you're saying, God, anything but that. And I'm here to tell you, like Jonah, he's relentless after that 1%. God, take anything else. God, relationships are great. All of them are in your bucket. Whatever you want from me, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. And God says, just open your hand just this much. Trust me with your financial reality. Just open it up this much. And you're going, God, anything but that. And he's relentless after that last one percent. It's who God is. Lord of all, he'll have his way no matter what. Jonah gets to that place. And he acknowledges this, this next line to God. He says, you, you hurled me into the depths into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight. This could be one of the most important takeaways that you have from our time together this morning. It's just two questions. Did Jonah feel like God had forgotten about him? Absolutely. Did God forget about Jonah? Absolutely not. When you are in that season, in the sea, in the belly of a whale, and you think it doesn't get worse than this, because honestly, it can't, you will be tempted along with so many others to say, God, why have you left Why have you left me to this? Don't you care? You will think that God had forgotten about you. But Jonah is here to tell you he didn't. He is about to do his greatest work, not around you in your circumstances necessarily, but starting inside of you. It's his greatest work. You are not forgotten. The next line He continues, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed wrapped around my head to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Uh, Last week, we just kind of gave a literary hint of how to read Jonah well. And one of the things we said is, Geographical distinction indicates spiritual direction. So Jonah went from where he was down to Joppa to get aboard this ship. On the ship, he went down to the bottom part of the ship to go down for a nap into a deep sleep, in fact. And just when he think he couldn't go down any further, he was thrown overboard down off the ship. I mean, he just keeps going further and further away from God until finally, finally now we get him and he's down to the roots of the mountains. I sank down. You just have this picture that he's, you know, sees these mountains up high and it just kind of goes down and maybe levels off and there's like a town or a city there and then like a beach. And, and then he just kind of has a sense of like the, the, the ground just keeps going all the way down, even past the water line. It just like keeps going. And there's like a mountain route 
like a tree, like this picture, under there, presumably somewhere. And Jonah's going, I found rock bottom. I found despair. Against myself, I found hopelessness. When I couldn't go down any further, it wasn't possible. And some of you, like this crazy events in your life and going, wow, I had no idea, no idea it could be like this. I could have no idea, like these events would conspire against me to get me in this place. I never saw this coming. It's like a fish came from out of nowhere and swallowed me up whole. It's that bizarre. And now I'm in this despair, hopeless situation. It's, it's impressive if it wasn't so tragic. Others of you are like, I just have despair. I just have like this generalized sense of hopelessness. Like whether you get down all at once or it's just this like slow and steady track on the way down, I want you to know something. It doesn't have to take a whale. Pay attention, please. It doesn't have to be so hard. It doesn't have to be that way. There are checkpoints on the way down that you can, you can like see an indicator of your heart to say something is not right here. Work on it. Work on it early before you hit rock bottom, the root of the mountain. You can cut it off now. Just some of those indicator lights, some of those checkpoints, the despair and hopeless in a, in a generalized sense sitting down after, after work and just like, listen, I need to zone out. Just binge watching like show after show after show on Netflix, YouTube, like thing after thing. Not because you're like captivated by the content, but because somehow you're like captive to the escape that it provides. You're not drawn to it. You're just drawn away from life this kind of like escape mentality, whether it's media consumption, whether it's food, whether it's alcohol, substance abuse, like all of these things are just indicators saying something is wrong. There's despair that's setting in. There's hopelessness setting in. Like you can cut that off early before hitting the bottom. And Jonah now, he, he, hits, he hits bottom. And finally, when he can't go down any further, we find this beautiful line. He says, but you, Lord my God, brought me, help me out, brought me, not a rhetorical question, actually help me out, brought me up, brought me up from the pit. It's like, it's so beautiful because finally he hits the bottom and he's like, I don't have anywhere else to go. And God, God starts, to, starts to bring him up. And we start to get the first sense, like, like all the while now, all the while, this is the first indicator in the story that, that Jonah wasn't placed in a chamber of death. He was placed in a temporary hospital for his soul to help him recover. God had left him. God is doing his greatest work in him. And then this next line, he goes, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. When? My life was ebbing away. Okay, just where is Jonah when he's praying this? Where is he? 
belly of the fish. He's praying this up, and his circumstances have not changed. But he's giving his life to God anyway. He's worshiping God anyway. I, I thought, we have this phrase that we say sometimes around here, like, we are holding on to God, and we are worshiping him through the battle. And one of the significant points of that, like, if you can get to that place where you can worship God and honor God, even when you have no reason to, from so it seems, and looking around, and it's so hopeless around, you can still worship God. Man, the perspective change that comes along with that when he finally takes you out of it is incredible. Jonah learns this remarkably difficult truth that at some point we all have to learn on one level or another. That for Jonah, it is better to be united with God in the belly of a fish than separated from God and walk around on dry land. He gets there. And so he, he finds that contentment in the fish and this line, a lot of scholars say that it's the center point, center point of the entire Jonah story. There's 23 verses ahead, 24 verses after. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. See, it, it's so important because Jonah, Jonah did this thing that a lot of times like Christians do, and we kind of like look at other people and be like, I'm so much better. I've cleaned up so much of my life I've really made something of myself. And Jonah's looking around at the Ninevites and going, Those, they're terrible. They're awful, objectively. And then he gets on a boat and he's hanging out with some sailors and be like, sailors, am I right? I'm better than them too. And they've got their crystals and their amulets and their handkerchief blessed by televangelists that they throw overboard. They've got all their superstitions. I'm not like them. I don't have idols. I don't have little gold statues or crystals that I put on the mantle place. It's this line that Jonah puts himself squarely in the place of everybody else. And he's going, no, no, I am like everyone else. I'm not any better off. I am those who cling to worthless idols. I've done that. The English word for worship comes from an older English word called worthship. It's just anything that you love more than God, crave more than God, and trust more than God. And Jonah says, guilty. On every front, guilty. This is so cool. So in the book of Jeremiah, entirely different story, setting, history, geography, everything is different. But in the book of, in the book of Jeremiah, God is speaking to his people. And he's laying down um, two ways that they've gone wrong. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, it says, My people, God is saying this, have committed two sins. Number one, they've forsaken me, me, the spring of living water. And number two, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. And on a human level, a living water wasn't what we think of it as, you know, from Jesus and his encounter with the woman at the well. Living water is just running water. It's river. It's clean. It's refreshing. It's not going to give you a nasty disease if you drink too much of it. It's just, it's good, running, refreshing, cool water. That's living water. And God says, I'm like that living water. I'm refreshing to your heart, to your, to your life. 
But you've chosen, you've turned away from me, and you've chosen these cisterns. And it's a broken cistern. A cistern is like if you want to keep something cool in the desert where it's hot, you just dig out this huge kind of basement in the desert with a little top and a big kind of under, underground, and it stays cool. But a broken cistern is cracked, and this nasty, tepid, mildewy, mildewy, rancid water starts to seep into it, and it's just plain nasty. Besides this, put that over here. Jesus, when he's talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus goes, if you knew, woman, who it was that's asking for a drink, I'd give you that living water. This is beside the point, but Jesus, he's standing in front of this, this outsider Samaritan woman, and he's claiming in those words to be the living water from Jeremiah chapter 2, God himself. He's making that claim to her, which is just, which is just wild. But back to Jeremiah, God says, this is how idolatry works, that you've chosen to turn away from this refreshing, clean, running water. And if that wasn't bad enough, you would go to the stale, putrid, rancid, rancid, mildewy, broken cistern of your own hand instead? Why? And the summary statement that just puts it all, so all idolatry, anything we hope for, love, crave more, trust more than God. It's only, it's only going to leave you disappointed. Any idol, anything we have signed worship more than God, he goes, just, it's only going to leave you disappointed. Jonah gets there. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. It's the theme of Jonah. It's the theme for the whole Bible. Salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation, grace. You know, maybe it's helpful this week to think about grace in a new way. To think about grace having these two sides to it. Grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. Those of you who have kids, you know that as much as you love them, they're also objectively terrible. <laughs> they cry in the middle of the night. They spill food all over. They <clears throat> rarely, if ever, clean up after themselves, especially when they're little, right? But, but me, as a dad, every year on their birthday, I give them presents, only on their birthday, because listen, I don't, no, not, not actually, but like I'll do nice things for them, even though, even though, especially as babies, like they've been awful to me. They've literally thrown up and pooped on me. Like I can't believe that. <laughs> they are, listen, they are an un, it, it is an undeserved gift. They did nothing to deserve the good things that I give them as a parent. However, I'm their dad. And so there's like an obligation to take care of them and to see after them. I am not an unobligated giver. You can swap these things around. You're in a small group and you have a small group leader who's just fantastic. Like the way that she creates like the home atmosphere and being so welcoming and inviting. The way she guides the conversation towards spiritual things and follows up with people and ensures spiritual growth and maturity and trust of every single person in her group. It's fantastic. And so you do something 
outside of anything that we've instructed you as an encounter church or any of it, you've, instruct, you've decided on your own as a group to go ahead and give her a present, a gift card to a restaurant as a thank you. Thank you for doing for that incredible work. You're so gifted at this. You're so amazing at this. Now listen, and nowhere did we ever ask you to do that. Has anybody asked you to do that? It was, it was an unobligated gift. You didn't have to do it. You just decided to. But it was definitely a deserved gift. <laughs> you are an unobligated giver, and it was a deserved, it was a well-deserved gift. In fact, don't calculate like the hourly equivalent on this thing. I mean, that's how much you deserve this gift card. It's not grace. It's not grace. Grace is the neighbor that you have who's terrible. He calls the cops when you don't take in your trash barrel from the road a day after the truck comes. This is the, this is the guy who blows his leaves into your yard so that he doesn't have to rake them. And then he gets sick. And you get a shovel out and take care of his driveway and take his trash out to the road and back again and clean up his leaves in your yard without saying anything. And suddenly we get a picture, a tiny picture, of an unobligated giver and an undeserved gift. That's grace. And salvation is like the ultimate form of all of this. Salvation is Jesus Christ. And you can kind of hear him echoes of it in the garden of Gethsemane. He's pleading with his father and he's saying, God, God, take this cup of, from me. There's this, this crown of weeds or thorns around my head, death barring me in from all sides, God. God, why have you forsaken me? But I'll do it. I will do it. Not because I have to. I am an unobligated giver. And not that they deserved it. It's an undeserved gift. It's better than all of that. It's grace. Grace for Jonah. Grace for you today. That's Jonah chapter 2. Next week we're going to see Jonah chapter 3 and we're going to find out that God, he can coerce obedience in the belly of a whale. But the face of Jesus inspires our obedience. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, we, uh, we want to turn over that last 1% to you today. Whatever it is that we're hanging on to, whatever it is that we want you to take your hands off from, uh, convict us in the most beautiful way. Convict us in an inspiring way to trust you, not necessarily out of obligation or a debt to pay or to try to deserve your favor and your grace as if there is such a thing. But God, because we love you and we, when we experience you and when we see your face, God, we readily turn our lives over to you. I pray for the person in the room li listening today who's in that crisis situation who doesn't know where else to turn. And God, show, show them extreme grace today. Jesus, it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.